Le mur à des oreilles, conversation pour la Palestine. Hi Josh, it's uh, it's great to have you on uh, Le Mur à des Oreilles. Uh, we um, obviously going to talk about Israel Palestine, about the about your book, of course, uh, Shattered Hopes, and uh, but I'd like to start with something um, very uh, newsworthy, let's say, uh, very um, John Kerry, who is leading the the last attempt, let's call it attempt, to uh, peace negotiations between Israel and Palestine. I think officially they are ending tomorrow on the 29th of April, uh, said today um, in a closed meeting apparently uh, that uh, if there was no two states, um, Israel could could turn in, into an apartheid state. Uh, so I wanted to ask you uh, uh, first a question like, um, what was really like the goal of, of this Kerry sort of negotiation thing? Do you think it was meant to succeed or or and what what actually success means in this case and what do you think about his, his comment about Israel being an apartheid state if there's no two states right I think that the negotiations were designed to achieve a full-blown peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians at least that was the declared intent at the outset of these nine months of negotiations which began last July and will end officially uh, tomorrow, as you mentioned, even though they've been dead politically for quite some time. That initial goal was later scaled back to only being a framework agreement for permanent status negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. And as even that became increasingly impossible, the State Department scaled it back even further so that the negotiations were just negotiating about more time to negotiate. In other words, more process, uh, no peace. Uh, Kerry's remarks in a closed-door meeting on Friday that uh, Israel might become an apartheid state when these negotiations break down is, I think, one in a long line of statements by the Obama administration that clearly recognize the course Uh, on which Israel is embarked. I think that they see the writing on the wall and they're desperately trying to save Israel from becoming a pariah state and apartheid state and they're trying to warn them of the consequences of their actions but to no avail. Okay, so um, again, continuing on about those uh, current negotiations, you've mentioned that the official end date is, is tomorrow but uh, anyone who follows uh, sort of the Israel-Palestine Uh, question knows that they've been sort of dead a few times already and now they, they're dead again and they and so what do you think is going to happen next i mean the the you know palestine the palestinians sort of the fat you know the pa plo fatah hamas have actually signed a reconciliation agreement um israel has replied by saying that you either make peace with hamas or peace with us Um, the PA has also, uh, you know, signed a few agreement, um, a few uh, ratified a few treaties at the UN. What do you think is going to happen next? Because I mean, y you know, the question is also for the PA. You know, Mahmoud Abbas always said that if the negotiation don't don't reach any hopeful end, uh, we might dismantle the PA. So there's a lot of questions around. And what do you think is going to happen next in terms of Israel and Palestine? 
I think it's hard to say at this point because exactly right that Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, has been pursuing a very contradictory policy and has been putting out very contradictory statements. So on the one hand, yes, he is talking about dismantling the Palestinian Authority, which is a threat that has been uh, issued many times uh, in the past without the PA having acted on it. But on the other hand, he's taking steps to consolidate and really perpetuate the PA by signing uh, this unity agreement with Hamas and promising to go to presidential and legislative elections to keep this apparatus going. So it's very difficult to say. Uh, and at the same time, you do have the PLO, which has already uh, signed uh, onto 15 different international conventions and UN bodies now saying that they've approved joining 60 additional UN bodies and treaties and so forth. So we'll have to wait to see whether one of those organizations is indeed the International Criminal Court because I think if Palestine becomes a member of the International Criminal Court, this could have tremendous ramifications uh, for the future of the relations and the way uh, that these so-called peace process negotiations are handled in the future. But I don't know, it's not at all clear that the PA is going that route at this point. The subtitle of your book is uh, uh, Obama's Failure to Broker Israel-Palestinian Peace. Could you explain this subtitle? And uh, the follow-up question is, was it really down to him, actually? Could, could, he, could he have done it? Could Obama, if he really uh, you know, wanted it, could have made history and made peace between Israel and Palestine, in your opinion, after writing your book? I think in President Obama's mind, he was convinced of both the necessity and of the possibility of establishing Israeli-Palestinian peace in his first term. And in fact, what we know from documents that were leaked from within the Palestinian negotiating team to Al Jazeera in two. 2011 is that when President Obama met with Mahmoud Abbas for the first time in his term in May of 2009, he promised Abbas that it was his personal promise and guarantee that he would move expeditiously to establish a Palestinian state in his first term. So the hopes were definitely the president's. Uh, but I don't think that President Obama was prepared for the type of uh, structural issues that prevent the United States from acting as an honest broker. And he certainly wasn't prepared for the pushback that he got from his policies uh, by the Israel lobby. And as I document in the book, uh, he capitulated very early on in his first term to these pressures uh, from the Israel lobby, which returned the United States to acting in the traditional role of Israel's lawyers in these negotiations, as Aaron David Miller famously called it, who was a former U.S. peace process negotiator himself. So I think Obama entered the White House uh, definitely optimistic, uh, very much naive and uh, unprepared to confront and challenge the power of the Israel lobby. And, and as you explain it in your book again, and actually one chapter of your book is called um, Obama, an unbelievably informed president. Uh, can, you, can you go further on this? Can you explain how 
why you, you, uh, you, why you gave such a title to uh, a chapter of your book. Right. This quote, an unbelievably informed president, is actually from the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who said that to a visiting congressional delegation of U.S. members of Congress very early on in Obama's administration. Uh, and what I do in one of the early chapters of the book is to recount Uh, the president's early engagement with the issue of Palestine and to show that he had more of a nuanced understanding and even empathy with Palestinians than any other president did upon entering the White House. Unfortunately, that empathy that he had did not translate into any policy changes. Yeah, because I, I mean, I remember during the uh, the first elections, actually, you know, he was, uh, he was called and he was Uh, a friend of Rashid Khalidi, who is a very prominent um, historian and, and, and uh, writer and activist in the U.S. He was, uh, I mean, Ali Abu Nimeh from the Electronic Intifada uh, recounted in one of his uh, articles a meeting with Obama when he was a senator um, a few times uh, and talking about Palestine and Obama even apologizing for not talking about Palestine enough. And so, so I guess the question is, Why the change, and, and what does it really say about the real power that a U.S. president holds? Well, different U.S. presidents have responded to challenges from the Israel lobby in different ways. Some have stood up successfully, uh, others have capitulated. And uh, Obama is not inherently a political fighter. Uh, he's a compromiser. Uh, he doesn't like to rock the boat. Uh, and so I think that when he was faced with this pressure very early on from the Israel lobby, uh, he really didn't want to spend the political capital that it would take uh, to push his policy ideas forward. So, for example, at the beginning of his administration, he demanded very clearly that Israel halt its illegal colonization of Palestinian land, period. Uh, and unfortunately, he was, was not willing to uh, take this demand to the American public, who overwhelmingly backed him at the time, according to public opinion polls. So this was in contrast, for example, to the policies that were pursued by President Eisenhower back in the 1950s, who was also challenged by Israel and by its lobby in the United States, but who nevertheless stood up and exerted significant pressure on Israel to change its policies and got a result out of that. But unfortunately, uh, Obama was not willing to spend uh, any of the political capital that he had to make these policy changes happen. Uh, okay, I mean, near final question, Obama, but do you think he might sort of do... Um Or, or turn into a Carter and be more vocal in Palestine when his uh, mandate ends? Do you think there's a chance of him writing uh, Israel Peace, Not Apartheid? <laughs> uh, I've thought about that. I do think it will be very interesting to hear what President Obama has to say uh, after he leaves office. And, you know, this is a traditional... Uh, This is a tradition of, of American politics, is that when politicians no longer in power, they finally feel unencumbered uh, to speak the truth about this issue. Uh, this is the exact same thing that President Bill Clinton did a few years ago. He was, of course, infamous for blaming Yasser Arafat and the Palestinians 
for the collapse of the Camp David peace talks back in 2000. Uh, and at the time, his condemnation of Arafat and the PLO was incredibly damning. And it was a very difficult discourse to challenge for many, many years when you had the President of the United States laying the sole blame on the Palestinians for the failure of these talks. But a couple of years ago, he came out and said, well, no, it was actually the fault of Israel why this peace process uh, broke down. So I would expect that Obama would have some very interesting uh, things to say. There's clear, clearly no love lost between uh, President Obama and the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu on the individual level. I've, um, I've actually just watched uh, the, the film Dirty Wars. Have you, have you seen it? No, no, I haven't. Okay, um, you should you should watch it. And uh, I mean, w after after sort of after you know watching that, you you are just, you are you sort of you are left with the um, feeling that things under Obama, at least in terms of uh, foreign policy, are actually worse than they were under Bush. They're actually even more illegal than they were under Bush. And and a few a few uh, people from uh, you know special forces, etc actually say that under Obama we can, you know, we can hit harder, quicker, faster, we don't have to ask Congress for anything, we, even the FBI doesn't know what we're doing. What would you respond to this in terms of Israel-Palestine? Do you think he's, can you, I mean, I know he's, do you think, do you think he's actually worse than Bush on Israel-Palestine? Or in terms of core policies and the supports of the, for example, the military relationship with Israel uh, compared to Bush? Well, one thing that is beyond a doubt is the levels of U.S. military aid to Israel have grown to unprecedented levels under Obama. Now, that was an agreement that was signed during the Bush administration. But you'll remember when Obama went to Jerusalem uh, last spring for his first foreign trip of his second term, he stated that he wanted to extend U.S. military aid to Israel beyond the term that Bush had negotiated, and he leaked it to the press that he wants to give Israel an additional $40 billion in weapons all the way to 2028. And I think this has really created a spoiled child syndrome uh, with Israel. The more Israel defies U.S. policy, uh, the more it hinders U.S. objectives uh, in the broader region, the more it gets rewarded for this behavior by the United States. And that's clearly uh, not a way to bring uh, Israel into line with broader U.S. foreign policy concerns. We've spoken about politicians and sort of our so-called leaders, and we, we see that even if uh, before they were elected, they were quite, um, quite knowledgeable about Palestine, and uh, once they're in power, everything changes for the, for the worse. So let's turn now to, uh, to us. To civil society and um, you do a very important job in the US uh, with uh, the US campaign to end the Israeli occupation. Can you briefly talk, talk to us about um, your work and the work of the team of the US campaign in, in the US? What type of work do you do? Sure. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm hugely optimistic actually uh, about this issue and certainly not on the official level of what the politicians are talking about but uh, on the civil society level, as you mentioned, we're seeing really tremendous growth worldwide and within the United States of the Palestinian Civil Society-led campaign 
for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel, against corporations that are profiteering from the oppression of the Palestinians. And we work very closely uh, with the Palestinian BNC, the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions National Committee, uh, to work on different campaigns and work with our member groups throughout the United States on advancing uh, these BDS campaigns. And we're actually a coalition of more than 400 groups uh, around the country. And we're seeing advances today that we really didn't think were possible just a few years ago. Uh, and in fact, the issue of Palestine, I think, has really turned into one of the most burning issues on college campuses in the United States today. Not just foreign policy issues, but issues in general that students are concerned with. So we're seeing a tremendous amount of organizing and activism uh, and successful BDS campaigning on college campuses today uh, in mainstream church denominations. And it's very clear that the Israel lobby is incredibly concerned and is putting major, major energy uh, behind efforts to try to kill these BDS campaigns, but it's not working. Okay, and, and do you, um, so do you think, but do you think this can eventually have an impact on, on, politi on, on the political aspect of things, on like actually on, uh, on you know, on foreign policies or... Do you th so do you think like the pressure from the bottom up at one point will will reach sort of a tipping point and could actually tr you know transform into change of policies? I would argue that we are already starting to see that impact on policy by John Kerry talking about Israel as a possible apartheid state. Uh, by him and Barack Obama talking about the growing delegitimization campaign against Israel and the growing BDS movement, uh, it's very clear that U.S. political elites are aware of this growing ferment at the grassroots level, and they're very concerned about it. Uh, so I think it already is affecting the policy discourse, and uh, I think it will trickle up eventually uh, to result in significant policy changes. And if you look at the history of BDS organizing in this country uh, to isolate and end uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa, you saw a similar process at work. It was grassroots organizing, BDS campaigning, eventually translating into the sanctions that the politicians imposed uh, on the apartheid government of South Africa, which obviously played a large role in bringing about an end to apartheid there. So I don't think we're, we're quite there yet, uh, but I do think uh, we are going to reach a tipping point very soon. Okay, so um, I guess you're, like, to, to wrap up, your, your advice, or your, what would you tell citizens in the U.S., I guess, but also all around the world that, that want to be involved in, in, uh, and want to you know, stand in solidarity with the Palestinians? What would you tell them to, uh, to do? To try to, to to change things, should they join organizations? What what should they they do? Yeah, definitely. You can get involved with the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation by going to our website at endtheoccupation.org, and from there you can get a list of all of the different groups that are working locally and nationally within our coalition, and get involved uh, on those levels as well with those groups.
Okay, and if they want to uh, to learn more about your book, do you have a website or? I do. You can go to my website, which is shattered-hopes.com. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's great. We will uh, obviously post the links, the proper links, uh, on the on our website once we've uh, we've edited all this. Uh, Josh, it was um, great talking to you. I mean, do you, if you have a final comment or something, if you have something you you want to mention that we haven't talked about, feel free to do so. But otherwise, um, it'd be you know, it was great to talk to you again. Thanks so much for having me on your program, Frank.